you have to stay uh, financially uh, viable to continue to operate the business and the farm. And you, you, you can't pay the bills without that. But if you lose sight of soil health, 20 years from now, you're not, you're not going to have the farm productivity to pay the bills either. So it, it does take both. Welcome to the 260th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Many farms have what's called a witness tree. Often it's an oak or other long-lived species that stood watch over generations of history. On the 700 acres of rented and owned land Martin Larson Farms near Rochester in southeastern Minnesota, such a tree recently died and had to be cut down. The growth rings of the massive bur oak show that it was 195 years old, a reminder that our presence on the land is temporary and that creating a truly regenerative farming system requires taking the long view. In his farming enterprise, Martin does his best to go beyond just managing from year to year and to indeed take in the big picture when considering his operation's economic and environmental resiliency. Besides farming, Larson also works for the Olmsted County Soil and Water Conservation District, where, among other things, he helps coordinate trials on a 40-acre research farm dedicated to soil health. Those trials have shown that soil-healthy practices like cover cropping dramatically cut the amount of nitrogen fertilizer leaching out of farm fields and into the groundwater. That's important to Martin, who, as an avid caver, is very aware of the quality and quantity of water that runs through the karst geology of southeastern Minnesota. But cover cropping is not the only answer. Martin is particularly excited about the potential offered up by longer-term, diverse rotations and reintroducing small grains into a row crop system. For the past few years, Larson has had good luck with oats, which he raises for the food market while selling the straw to construction companies and transportation departments. He's found that a small grain like oats breaks up pest cycles, provides fibrous roots that keep nutrients in place, and overall provides the diversity healthy soil needs. During a July field day sponsored by LSP's Soil Builders Network, along with the Soil and Water Conservation Districts in Olmstead and Wabasha counties, Martin described how he has integrated oats into his operation and how this small grain is building soil health while generating a good economic return. The farmer is particularly happy with the 2021 oat harvest, which produced an impressive yield of around 115 bushels per acre. Larson did a quick calculation showing that when one considers the lower input costs associated with oats, along with the markets available for the grain and straw, it can at times outcompete corn financially. But that doesn't include the longer-term financial boost he receives by introducing a third crop into the rotation. Research out of Iowa shows that making small grains part of a rotation results in a yield bump for row crops down the line. In addition, harvesting an oat crop in July opens wide a planting window for a soil-building cover crop that might be hard to get established after harvesting corn in the fall. That, said Martin, is the advantage of thinking beyond one growing season, of taking the long view. After the field day, I talked to the farmer about how diversifying his corn-soybean rotation is building long-term resiliency on his farm. We also discussed some of the results coming out of the Olmsted County Soil Health Farm. Martin says the data that can come out of a research facility like this one goes beyond just cheerleading about the benefits of soil health. In fact, it can provide concrete, practical results farmers can utilize on their own operations. Uh, So when we look at economics of oats, we can look at it from a single-season perspective. 
And there we would look at what does it compare to corn or soybeans if we grew oats. So what it, when we compare all of our inputs to our revenue, what's the bottom line? And at 95 bushels, we about break even on the oat crop. At our current yields for this year on this farm, uh, we're going to be right around that 120. We're going to be pretty close to corn. And then you consider the value of the straw. Of course, we're going to be, you know, we'll be a little higher than corn on this given year. But that doesn't take into account what the system returns when you include oats into your farm. Mm -hmm. So now we go from a two-year rotation to a three-year rotation. And in that three-year rotation, you're likely to see a yield bump to corn and soybeans. And that is all due to the oat crop that you introduced it. So in the long term and in the system, it becomes uh, financially beneficial to have that third crop. Looking years down the road, you're going to get, you're building that soil health in a way that any future row crop is going to benefit a little bit. Yeah, and that's the trajectories of farms, right? So if you have a trajectory of a farm that's being uh, over-tilled, treated poorly, erosion is very high on it, compaction is very high on it, and 10 years down the road or 20 years down the road, what's the productivity of that farm going to be at its current trajectory? Mm -hmm. As compared to a farm that has uh, its focus on soil health and more than, one, more than two crops, and those crops that build soil health or in, and cover crops in there as well, where will that be in 10 and 20 years mm -hmm. compared to the so-called poorly treated farm, as we call it, that farm will be much more productive, likely substantially, if not exponentially more, than the farm that's treated poorly. The question was asked is when you make a cropping decision, is it based on economics or soil health? And you said both. And, and, and when you explain it this way, I can see why you can say both, because you're kind of equating soil health with financial kind of viability. Yes, that is very true. You have to stay uh, financially uh, viable to continue to operate the business and the farm. And you, you, you can't pay the bills without that. But if you lose sight of soil health, 20 years from now, you're not, you're not going to have the farm productivity to pay the bills either. So it, it does take both. You would really like to see because you're very familiar with water quality issues in this area through your work with SWCD and through your caving experience. You have really, sounds like, became convinced that if we could get more small grains integrated into that rotation, that that would be a huge plus for water quality. Uh, yeah, so anything we do to the corn and soybean cropping system to interrupt it is a good thing for water quality, all things equal. So if we introduce... a uh, a small grain, which is a cool season crop, or small grains that may be cool season crops, that are solid stand, that have deep fibrous roots, that scavenge nitrogen, and is marketable and economic, then we have a window of opportunity to move soil health forward in an economically viable way. And we've used oats in the past as feed. We've always eaten them as food so we have you know two very lucrative or or financially viable ways to use the oats for this for the the, the processing chain too take us through a little bit you're like this year you're take you're take this is here we are 
mid-July, late July, and you're taking off your crop of oats, then what are you going to do with that, that that piece of land that you got the oats on? What's kind of your process from here on out? So I'm going to do at least two or three things with, with the 140 acres that I have. Um, on the farm that we're at here, the sole purpose of what I plant next will be to build soil and to provide nitrogen for next year's corn crop. That will be its sole purpose. It will not have another purpose. Uh, as compared to a different farm, uh, I would be interested in taking some of that crop that's planted after oats as feed for livestock. So it will be harvested as a forage crop. And the third thing is we'd still have a window of opportunity to plant a grain crop like buckwheat that has a short turnaround and maturity cycle. So that you plant your buckwheat right after we get the bales off the field and it could be ready to harvest at the same time as soybeans. So we could have a grain crop opportunity yeah. as well. And so some of this you're going to, what is it, put in some clover uh, or what are you putting in yeah. to kind of build that, your fertility for next year? So for nitrogen, you know, the two staples are going to be a clover or multiple species of clover and a vetch. And for diversity, I'll introduce small quantities of other species, but because I really want that, that nitrogen credit, I'm focusing on the cover crops that we know can provide that to the corn crop. So I think a, a big uh, drive-home message that we've found at the Soil Health Farm is the water quality data below soil health practices. And, you know, it's part of the data that we need to move uh, forward some soil health initiatives related to water quality and that's because of the lysimeters and the lysimeter sampling. We've also gathered data like what does a cover crop potentially do for the cash crop? Mm -hmm. Are we seeing yield benefits? Are we seeing yield drags? And some of the rumors like tall rye takes yield from corn that we've actually shown that that's not necessarily true through replicated trials. So those are two strong messages that we've gotten out of the farm. Of course, we always have those messages that, well, we tried this and it didn't really work. We didn't get a catch on that cover crop or the cover crop was weedy or we've had this issue with it. So we might need to take a little different look at managing it in this way. Mm -hmm. So I think the don't do's are as important as the do's mm. uh, when we look at that farm. And you, you had some really striking graphics you, that came out of that, some of that research showing just the drop in how much uh, nitrogen is leaching out of that field when you use cover crops. I mean, it was, it was a real contrast. Yeah, and, and this is becoming commonly accepted that a good cover crop can reduce nitrates by 60% with good growth. So obviously there is a range from zero to 80, yeah. but a, a, a well-established cover crop does reduce nitrates. And, and that's really important for us in Southeast Minnesota. Well, that's, and that brings up my other question is Southeast Minnesota. That, I think that farm is in a great location, not only because this is corn bean country and there's a lot of farm land in this area. So that's an important audience, but the other important audience is maybe people in the Rochester area who know nothing about agriculture and maybe do always associate it with bad news when it comes to water quality, right. that maybe that can be a good audience to see how innovative farming can help. Yeah, and that, that is a lot of, I guess, our initiatives at the SWCD and mine personally 
it's not just about communicating with other farmers. It's about communicating with the general public and local governments or state governments or hopefully even federal governments uh, that, that really make policies that affect our food sourcing and our agriculture significantly uh, because ultimately some of those policies may need to change in order to see the kind of change that I would like to see in the landscape that, that many people would like to see in the landscape. Are you getting much interest from farmers who are kind of looking at your results or coming out and checking out what you're doing? My job at the SWCD still is uh, predominantly with feedlots, mm -hmm. but I spend equal time working on soil health, and most of that time of working on soil health is answering technical questions. So I think we've moved beyond the stage of cheerleading for cover crops mm. and soil health. Uh, at least for most, and we really need to like hunker down and deliver more data and information and help and advice on actually getting it done. So how do we take a concept of soil health and apply it to farms in southeast Minnesota? And each farm is different because they have different planters, they have different soil types, they have different little subtleties in management style. And most of the time, I'm talking with them over how to get it done. So what changes might have to be made to their planter, if any, or when to seed the cover crop or when to terminate it, especially this year when we were dry. It must be really key when you, when you start to get past the cheerleading and you're, they're looking for results, economic results, agronomic results, to have a local place like that that's their local soil and their local weather conditions. Yeah, just local... That was kind of the idea behind experiment stations. It was supposed mm -hmm. to be that localized rather than trying to get right. information from a thousand miles away kind of thing. Well, local and the fact that it's field scale and plot scale. Mm. So you can look at a plot scale experiment and say, well, it's, you know, it's just plot scale. We can't really do that on field scale. So we have both going on. So we can measure data in a plot scale um, and also have some demonstration there, but also on a field scale. And a system scale, mm -hmm. because this year there's oats over there, um, so that that all gets demonstrated as well as studied. Mm. And it's local, yeah. because it's, it's, it's our local weather and climate that, you know, it's dealing with the same things that the rest of us are dealing with in Olmsted County. Speaking of the Soil Health Farm, Olmsted County Soil Conservation Manager Skip Langer says having local, practical plot research results on hand is key if soil-friendly practices like cover cropping and diverse rotations are to become a more consistent part of farming operations in the region. So why soil health? What was it about uh, w when you decided, well, we, we're going to have an experimental farm, why was the focus going to be on soil health? Well, we had just kind of started down that road of, it seemed like soil health was getting to be the new buzzword, and so... Um, what happened for starters when we started bringing speakers in, folks that were experts, um, to talk to our local producers about soil health, it seemed like we were a lot of times going into to North Dakota and we were pulling those folks out that had been trying it for some time. And, and the thought kind of was locally that, you know, they're looking at systems, grazing systems, haying systems, how cover crops play into that system. And... What we were noticing was that with our local southeast Minnesota um, agriculture, 
that's not really the type of system that we have here. And so we wanted to bring something that looked more like home, um, you know, to Olmstead County. And so that was kind of the uh, the way that we spun it to our to our county team and what we decided to do with um, with promoting you know local soil uh, health systems to producers. And you are, and, and you explained this a little bit earlier, but you're in kind of a really unique situation here. This is heavy, this is the heart of farming country in southeast Minnesota. You also have a pretty major metropolitan area. On top of that, you got the karst geology. So soil health is looking at what's happening with nutrients and other agrochemicals that are going through that soil profile, what's happening to that. It would I would think really be key for an SWCD in this area. Yeah, it really is. I think that's actually probably one of the greatest things we see going forward is that looking at agriculture, recognizing that in order to sustainably farm in the future, we need to do something different. And I think that the soil health, the different soil health methods out there are, are one of those keys. We just want to help to teach uh, producers by demonstrating um, and using, you know, transparency in the soil health farm, you know, what our inputs are, what our outputs are, so that they can understand, you know, more about um, what they can do, I think, to, one, protect their bottom lines, to keep farming in the future, and then also to incorporate these new types of systems um, into what they're doing on a, on a daily basis and have success. I mean, that's really the, the big thing is here to, is to promote and demonstrate success to folks. Well, it must be really key for farmers to be able to go get results from a local area that's their local soil type, their local weather, you know, the conditions that they're dealing with rather than maybe having to rely on an experiment station that's maybe even, maybe it's still in Minnesota, but it's in another part of the state. Yeah, I think that's critical. You you pinned it there, and and another thing that I think is is key to the success of our program is that um, we work with folks like Martin Larson, Kevin Connolly, Tom Pyfrone, and these guys are they're respected in the ag community. Um, they're not afraid to talk to folks and get the information out there. They're not afraid to say what failed, but they're also not afraid to talk about where the great successes are, and so I think that really is one of the keys for sure. But yes, there is, there's more and more happening. There's more farmers willing to share, um, you know, what they're doing on their farms, and, and I think that will be the key to sort of this cultural shift going forward um, in agriculture. Is there, uh, cover crops has kind of been the focus, it sounds like, of your research. Is there some other areas in the future you'd like to look into that you kind of get excited about, or is that the, is it going to kind of stay on cover crops for now? Yeah, I think probably the bigger picture is just soil health. There's so many components to that, and I think um, cover crops is just one, and it's fairly easy to get at, but I think, um, you know, the no-tilling will also be another thing, and then we can start looking at, you know, rates of application of, of nutrient and other things, and hopefully diversification of crops into the future. I mean, we had that once upon a time back in grandpa's days. We see livestock leaving, that kind of shifted things to more of a corn-soybean rotation, but I I think in the future, as Martin talked about at the field day today, more about, you know, oats and other small grains, that we're going to be promoting a little bit of that diversification back into the production here. So.
Martin Larson belongs to the Land Stewardship Project's Soil Builders Network, a collection of over 800 farmers and others who regularly share information on practical, innovative practices. To sign up for the network and for links to other podcasts and articles featuring Larson, see the podcast page for episode 260 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSB. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.